what it was like was that it I grew up with questioning safety, questioning reality. I was just on a call with a coaching client where we were talking about he too had a mother who is mentally ill. And and the difficulty of grasping what's real and what's not real, right? That constant sense of gaslighting. And you know, for me, it created on a positive side, it created what I often referred to as a hypervigilance where I read rooms. From Goose Creek Consulting, welcome to the Silver Linings Handbook. I'm Jason Blair. That was Jerry Colonna, the former head of Flatiron Partners, the investment firm that helped make Silicon Alley the hub of New York's dot-com boom. I first met Jerry when he led Flatiron and I covered Silicon Alley for the New York Times. We both found our way to coaching, although Jerry's journey was a little less or much less scandalous than mine. Jerry is now an executive coach at Reboot IO, where he's the CEO and executive coach and facilitator who uses his insight to create better humans and better leaders. He also hosts an amazing podcast called Reboot IO, which I would recommend you all check out. Today, we're going to be discussing startup culture, the characteristics of good entrepreneurs, some of the challenges that people and leaders face as their companies mature, and the heady days of Silicon Alley. We're also going to talk a little bit about mental health, about race, about coming out of the pandemic in this wide-ranging conversation that I think you'll all enjoy. Jerry, thanks for uh, joining us on the podcast today. Um, I really appreciate it. Oh, Jason, it's it's a delight. And, and I want to say that when we reconnected over Twitter... I had the biggest smile on my face, and I'm not going to let it go further and say, our journeys may have been different, but I would not have characterized your journey as as scandalous. I would say it was interesting. (laughs) It's so interesting. And I'm proud to know you and really, really happy to be talking to you again. Yeah. Well, it's great to hear that because I think uh, sometimes when you're in the middle of something like that, you sort of feel like you've, uh, I think, broken trust or broken your relationships with everyone. But one of the things that I've really learned since the scandal happened and since I've become a coach is that, you know, people, even if it's not on the front page of the New York Times or on Dateline NBC, Everybody has their sort of cross that they carry. Usually it's much more private. But what I found is that my experience is way more relatable to people than I would have ever guessed, if that makes sense. Jason, not only do I agree with you entirely, but, you know, when you read my book, because you will read my book, you'll discover that my mother was bipolar and had schizoaffective disorder. And she grew up with delusions. I grew up with delusions, um, with her talking to Jesus Christ when he happened not to be in the room at the time. Mm -hmm. So 
Yes. Relatable is the word of the day. Yeah. No, that makes complete sense. And that's been, you know, in my mental health coaching work beyond, you know, working with people uh, in the mental health arena. One Mm. one thing I've done a lot of is working with um, the children of people who have things like bipolar Mm. disorder or schizoaffective or all sorts of other uh, disorders and sort of recognizing that it's almost like you're growing up in a different world than everyone around you. In the beginning, you don't realize that you're growing up Mm -hmm. in a different world. So maybe, maybe I'll start off asking you a little bit about what growing up was like. Um, I I remember reading a profile of you recently um, Mm -hmm. where, you know, it talked about growing up at Edward Murrow high school and putting yourself Mm -hmm. through Queens college, but maybe the story starts before then even. Tell me, what was what was it like to to sort of grow up before your career began? Uh, it definitely started before that, and and I would argue that everything I am today, all the aspects, all of the aspects to my personality that exist, began when I was a little boy, trying to make sense of a very difficult to understand home situation. So to describe the context, as I, as I said, my mother, only later when I was a teenager, did my siblings and I get the diagnosis that she had schizoid affective disorder bipolar. And uh, my father was also alcoholic. Two mm-hmm. very relatable experiences. Yeah. And what it was like was that it, I grew up with questioning safety, questioning reality. I was just on a call with a coaching client where we were talking about he too had a mother who is mentally ill. And the difficulty of grasping what's real and what's not real, right? That constant sense of gaslighting. And, you know, for me, it created on a positive side, it created what I often refer to as a hypervigilance where I read rooms, and that made me a very, I don't know if you remember this, but I was a reporter too once. Yeah. It made me a very good reporter. It made me a very good investor. And it makes me an exceedingly good coach because I feel people. Yep. It because was a safety mechanism. Yeah. You yeah. had to, to survive. Yeah. And you I know. think it's probably true of the alcoholism as much as it is of something like schizoaffective. You know, I... I have bipolar disorder and it's very difficult to deal with the mood swings, mania, and being very elevated to depression. But one of the things that really stands out to me about schizoaffective disorder is that the paranoia and delusions even stay when your mood is normal. Um, Mm -hmm. And and the same thing, you know, I once had a client say to me that, uh, very similar to you in the sense, she said, I learned the right moment to hide under the bed. I learned the right mm-hmm. moment to leave. I learned the right mm-hmm. moment when not to say that magic word. And I could just tell by the way the footsteps were coming or the sound in the voice or the idea that came out. And she was mm-hmm. making a very similar point, which kind of shocked me in the moment because I didn't expect her to talk about how mm-hmm. um, you know, her parents and her home life struggle was actually a gift for her. And it sounds like you're, you had a very similar experience. Absolutely. And I'm smiling because in my book, I describe listening for the footsteps 
not so much for my mother, because with my mother, I would watch her eyebrows to see where she was. But with my father, I would listen for the footfalls in the hallway. We lived in a ground floor apartment in Brooklyn. And I would listen to what those footfalls sounded like as he was coming home. Meaning, was he going to come home and be drunk? Was he going to come home and be angry? What was it that we were anticipating? And so your client and I share this uh, ability, if you will, the superpower of being uh, hypervigilant and being able to anticipate. Now, as Marvel does a great job teaching us, every superpower has a dark side, right? right. And right. that hypervigilance can drive one crazy. But if you take the wounds and you do the work, and you've done your work, I've done my work, if you do your work, you can extract the gold from that experience. And I think that to that point, you know, you made the point about hypervigilance and you know, that can turn into, like you're saying, anxiety or mm-hmm. emotional instability, but it also can turn into some amazing things like self-awareness, um, mm-hmm. an ability to understand yourself and understand other people. So it makes a lot of sense to me why um, someone who's gone through this experience has the opportunity, like you said, if you do the work, that um, the opportunity to go forward. So what did that work look like for you? Oh, well, you know, if we, if we tr- go into the hot tub time machine right, and travel <laughs> all the way back, you know, you mentioned Queens College. Well, first semester, uh, Queens College, um, first semester college, first of all, I chose, I, I went to Queens College because it was uh, a university of last choice. I, I actually was so depressed in high school and so skilled at hiding it that much to the surprise of everybody, all of the adults in my high school, I really was not applying to colleges. I was not trying to do anything. I was, I was lost. And so I went to Queens College because you didn't actually have to apply. You could literally walk up the day of registration and just start taking classes. Wow. And by the end of the first semester, though, I was so depressed that or the depression had caught up to me that I uh, attempted to kill myself. Mm. And I cut my wrists um, and ended up in a psychiatric hospital for three months. Wow. Wow. And so that Uh, was right as you were walking into college. Yeah. Yeah. It was the end of the first semester. Um, and, And... while I was at the uh, hospital, um, I began seeing a therapist, began doing some work. You know, you use the term self-awareness. I like the term radical self-inquiry, mm. which is a kind of, I'm going to figure this shit out commitment. And I began doing that work at 18 years old, 19 years old. And I didn't mention it, but your your mm. book, it's Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. One of the mm. things that I that I did like about it, and I have not read it, I've listened to its audio uh C Oh. Yep. So but one of the Did I make that- you cry? <laughs> <laughs> I, I found it powerful. I oh, think that I one of the things that stuck out to me 
was that you talked about the potential. It was sort of, and I'm not going to get the phrase right, right, but it was like that idea of sort of harnessing your potential by looking or taking the raw material that sort of makes up you mm. and then building something healthy out of it. Mm. And I did do my, I did do a little homework. I can't promise I did as much as New York Times reporter uh, homework, but I did a little. <laughs> well, you know, that phrase, Jason, didn't you do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, I think, and, you know, I don't know how you felt for me. And I think some of this is the nature of my personality. Some of this is the nature of being... Uh, black American in my generation. Mm. But I think for like the point that I was a, a student in school, um, mm. I sort of felt like I needed to be perfect and pre-made and I needed to be ahead and I needed to be successful. Um, mm. And, you know, there are a lot of great things about that ambition, being driven, having direction, but it was so unrealistic by the age of you know 27 or 22 or 25 or even mm. 18 to have it all figured out. And what I thought I had, right? I thought I had this mm. thing. I was a you know reporter at the New York Times in my early 20s. I you know had worked at the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, all these places. I thought I had it figured out, and I thought I it had to stay figured out. But I think mm. one of the things that I realized afterwards, and this is where I think what happened to me was the greatest gift that ever happened to me in my life. It was so humbling that I had to look back and I had to get past all the shame and I had to look at what was there that was a part of me, my core values, my core personality traits, my drive for altruism, and realize mm. that, you know, as hard as this was, or as shameful as this was, this is a new opportunity to look at what's at the core of you and mm. build something really good. So, mm. I mean, the, the thing I love about coaching is I get to give back to people based on, you know, not only total alignment with my values, but my most difficult experiences allow people to improve their lives, avoid missteps and improve their quality of life. So, you know, it is very similar, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. I, and, you know, I think the differences are important. I want to not skip over an important statement that you made, which was part of your identity as a black American, a black American man. I think you identify as male. Yep. Yep. Um, I, can, I can imagine the ways in which that might have shaped part of that journey. Yeah. I can't know them but I can certainly hear them. And then but there are th parallels, Jerry, there are parallels. I mean, you grew up in Brooklyn. What do you, mean? Mm -hmm. you grew up as Brooklyn and I believe as a part of an Italian American family. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know if you experienced this in the same way, but you know, you mm -hmm. head off to college, not everybody mm -hmm. in your community heads in that direction. You know, you want <laughs> not everybody in my family. Right, right, right. Yeah. And my parents are the only two among, you know, my mom's 10 brothers and sisters and my dad's nine mm. that went to college. Mm. And you're sort of carrying, you can end up carrying this heavy weight and this heavy need to be successful. And uh, yeah, it's, and, it's, you carry the, the dreams and wishes of your ancestors, you know? Yep. Yep. That, that people fought hard. They died. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. immigrated from far away, whether it was by choice or, or, or not by choice or in between. Yeah. 
right? Mm-hmm. For me to be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, you know, it's it's funny you bring this up because it's very much a part of the new book that I'm just completing now. It's it's due out this this fall. And that book looks at the question of what a leader's responsibility as it is, as it relates to creating a sense of belonging within an organization. And part of my assertion is that we all, all, all of us who hold power, to whatever the degree of power we hold, have a moral and ethical responsibility to lean into what I call systemic belonging, to over, overcome systemic othering, systemic racism. And, and that part of that process is coming to understand what you just described, Jason, which is that ancestral lineage, understanding what was their experience and really internalizing that and, and drawing strength from that, uh, turning what I call our ancestors into elders and, and being able to draw upon them so that you know, in the long dark nights of the soul that we all tend to experience, we can reach back and hear them. You know, a fascinating thing that you wouldn't have known when we worked together before, um, somewhere around, uh, I don't know, the late 2000s, my grandmother on my father's side died. Mm. She was a wonderful woman. She was a great, 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 great person. But we were sitting before the funeral, we were sitting at her kitchen table with a bunch of relatives. And one of my cousins said, you guys aren't really Blairs. I mean, you're Gilcrests. And everyone at the table, my dad, my mom, my aunts and uncles were like, what are you talking about? And Mm. she said, well, you know, you guys aren't really Blairs. You're Gilcrests. And you used to be in 96 South Carolina. And we thought she was, she had lost her mind and we were checking Mm. in. But what we found out, um, I did about two years of research on it and found out that my father's uh, father, his brother had been lynched in a town called 96 South Carolina. And a white family in the town um, hid my grandfather's family in the attic of their house, moved them across South Carolina, got them renamed so there wouldn't be retribution. And, you know, I think of stories like that and I think of uh, my ancestors and what they went through and what they've done and that inspiration can be unbelievably powerful, uh, I think, powerful in my life. I've never, I, I don't think I've ever told that story publicly, so. Can, can we just pause? I want to honor your ancestors. And Thank you. The, their journey, their experience, it's heartbreaking. And it makes me furious. Yeah. Um, and it makes me sad. And I am thrilled that you had that relative at that funeral say to you, no, this is who you are. These are the people to whom you belong. And I think, to your point, Jerry, both infuriating and inspiring. Because when I think of what my grandfather went to be, and I think about what a wonderful man he was and how positive he was and Mm. how he fought for every one of his um, children and had hope and optimism, you know, Mm. to think that a man could go through those things and have that hope and optimism is an inspiration for me. Uh, Well, I'm going to go on a limb here and say, even though I wasn't close to you during your recovery, let's call it, and your rebuilding, 
you, I have an inkling of where your strength comes from. Oh, you tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Those ancestors. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. No, I've always felt that the gift that I've always had, it has, has been my uh, family, that unwavering family support that, um, you know, uh, being surrounded by love. And, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing about being in the world of coaching. Mm-hmm. I think being able to sort of give that gift to people and help them find health and boundaries and fulfillment. I think so much of it, just like my experience at the times, uh, you know, probably made me more empathetic. My experience with my family has probably made, you know, my expectations for what's possible for people probably even greater. I'm curious, jumping back to that spot at Queens College, mm-hmm. how, how did you get to the point where you were able to take that raw material and build something? I, you know, I know, you know, when I look, read your bio, right, your, your, mm-hmm. your old bio, it sort of starts with your internship at CPM, right? And becoming CMP. an editor. CMP. Yeah. yeah, that's right. CMP. Mm-hmm. And becoming an editor. But how did you put yourself through school and, and make it to that point even? Yeah. Um, I think that there was a moment after I left the psychiatric hospital where I kind of came out with a, a bit of a hellfire inside of me. And I, it was not easy. I worked three jobs during college just to pay rent and have food. Most of the meals I had were oatmeal. Um, I would have oatmeal twice a day uh, because it was uh, filling, not nutritious, but filling and cheap. It tricked you um, into thinking you were full. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I could make it through a day. I could make it through a long day on campus. And I started a habit of just moving quickly and doing a lot. Um, I still, to this day, do a lot, you know? And I think that that's, that was the first piece. The, the second piece was that I had the great good privilege of, you know, I had a college professor, Robert Greenberg, who identified me as a recipient for a scholarship. I was about to drop out of school because I hadn't paid my tuition and I was going to be kicked out basically. And, uh, he gave me a scholarship that paid my tuition for two years, which then came with an internship at CMP, which then led to me being a journalist, um, which then led me to becoming a venture capitalist. Wow. And that was the experience. That's a powerful, powerful story. You know, one of the things that uh, over the pandemic that I've noticed is that even in my work that involves leadership development, um, mental health has increasingly become a part of the conversation. I don't think that's, I think that's a great thing. But I was wondering, what advice do you have for, you know, sort of young people like, you know, who are walking in the shoes that you walked in before, who are struggling with their own mental health themselves or, or with their parents in today's sort of modern workplace. Do you have any advice for them? Well, you know, I, 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 first of all, I agree with, with your observation that it's becoming more and more acceptable to talk about things. I mean, here we are in the middle of January and 
Demar Hamlin uh, suffered a cardiac arrest on on the field, uh, the Buffalo Bills player. And the thing that I have, I have a few clients who are former NFL players, and I heard from all of them. And the thing that I was most struck by this week was there does seem to be a little bit of a pause that says, what the fuck are we doing to people? Are we really going to put ball players back on the field this weekend? And I don't know if you noticed the coverage, but there is a lot of television coverage of grown men in tears holding each other. Yeah. And I, I did. I am hopeful about that. Yeah. And so to answer your question, the advice I would give is to is to pick up your eyes and see that it is no longer the shame-producing place that it was. There are people, one of whom is on this podcast with me, who are brave enough to say, I have bipolar disorder, and can stand there as a model for what does it mean to be an adult human, frail, fickle, unpredictable human. See, I think that one of the challenges that a lot of our leaders go through is this belief that they're supposed to be somehow infallible, and that will break you. Yeah, I, I think I faced that same same challenge myself. Or infallible. Well, the stakes were high, right? I mean, yeah. What oh, if yeah. you had failed? Huh. Right, right. And I see lots of other parallels if you think about it for the LGBTQ community that. Mm-hmm. You know, lived in an environment. I remember in the 90s when I was in college, we had to put stickers on our dorm room doors and our offices in the college that said it was a safe place. And I always thought, right. like the world wants you to fit in the same mold. No one talked about mental health. Um, a great story about that when I first went in for my um, first uh, outpatient intake after the time scandal, I filled out one of those intake forms and it said, you know, do you have a family history of diabetes, cancer? And then it listed all these mental health conditions. And I checked off, no, no, no. In the next two years after that, I found out like my aunt was on <laughs> bipolar meds. Another aunt was schizophrenic. My mom had a mental breakdown in the middle of college. I was like, oh, so, you know, like all these people who I see with all these accomplishments, they're just as frail and just as human as me. And I began to realize right. that, that humanity is actually the beauty. Right. Right, right. Uh, I, I think that story is uh, remarkably on target. I think that because, and we still live in the shadow of shame, and because the conversation, while the conversation is getting better and more open, it's not as open as we need, especially in a post-pandemic world. And I think that the, you know, one of the reasons I have been as open as I have about my struggles with depression is uh, I have benefited from people like Parker Palmer, whose book, uh, Let Your Life Speak, detailed his journey with depression, which then made it safe for me to speak about it. And I think that this is what you and I do. This is what people, when people who hold power speak, you create safety for others. Yep. It opens the door, and you even see it uh, in the mental health community. It wasn't until Kay Redfield Jameson wrote her book, The Unquiet Mm. Mind. She's a Mm -hmm. psychiatrist and a 
professor at Johns Hopkins University, that the conversation, even within the mental health community about Mm -hmm. their own mental health, uh, Mm -hmm. started to happen. And, you know, something that always struck me about you, Jerry, before we dive into the good old days of Silicon Alley, I remember reading, and this may be, I may be misremembering this, but you had made a list. It was a magazine's list of like the most generous young Americans. And I remember reading that and laughing. I'm like, that is not the quality that I normally associate with venture capitalists. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about like, what are those values that drive you? It must be an interesting combination. Well, you know, yeah, I understand the the, the perception and, and the irony is that a lot of the folks that I grew up with in the venture capital business are in fact incredibly generous and caring. But I know that it is pushes up against a stereotype. One of the qualities, I was talking to my therapist just recently. Um, I, I, I see him twice a week and we were talking about Christmas. And I'm one of those folks who have always had an ambiguous relationship with the holidays. But the part of me that that can be five years old and just look with wonder at Christmas lights still also enjoys being Santa. I huh. enjoy being the guy who sends an amazing present to someone. And I take great joy in giving. And I, I think it has to do with the poverty that I grew up with. I think it has to do with the sense that well, a couple of things. Too much is given, much is expected. That's yes. from the Bible. Um, I think that, you know, we were talking about ancestors before, and I think that to be a worthy descendant of our ancestors, we have a moral and ethical responsibility to give back, to pay it forward. You know, you were marveling at the story of Robert Greenberg giving me a scholarship. Well, that scholarship was created by a woman named Lilo Leeds. And Lilo and her family escaped Nazi Germany in 1938, came to the United States, went to Queens College. And in her uh, generosity, endowed a scholarship for which I was the first recipient. And so when I turn around and I send a check to somebody, I am paying Lilo back. Ah, yeah. I never really, you know, and it may be one of those just sort of misconceptions that exist about the field. I remember, uh, you know, back back during the late 1990s and the early aughts in Silicon Valley, you mm. and your partner, Fred Wilson, that Flatiron Partners, were sort of known for making, and you may laugh at this, really smart investments, not necessarily always the flashiest ones. Um mm. Did sort of uh, altruism for you play a role in your investment philosophy? And, you know, what did you look for in companies and what did you look for in leaders? Well, I don't want to position myself as, I mean, humility is, I don't want to get into a false humility. I'll tell you an investment I'm very proud of having made. How's that? Do you remember the story of Matthew Shepard? Yes. Yes. The teenager, um, out west, who was um, gay, right? And he was tied to right. a, a fence um, right. and tortured and killed. Yeah. I think it's Melissa Etheridge who wrote the song and sings the song Scarecrow. Or maybe it's the Indigo Girls. Yeah. I could be 
confusing those two, and which uh, which is about Matthew Shepard. And I remember being so heartbroken that a young man who was simply trying to find love was murdered. And shortly after Matthew Shepard uh, was murdered, the founders of a company called Planet Out Partners came in looking for an investment. We ended up merging them with uh, Gay.com, or they were Gay.com. They were online partners. I forget the names of everybody. It was Planet <laughs> Out, and we, we put this deal. And we, we built the first social media site for the LGBTQ community, the first and the largest. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't grinder. It wasn't a hookup kind of experience. It was a place of safety, a welcoming. And I, to this day, still believe that it is possible to be, to create uh, morally good organizations and do well in terms of the business, whether it's as an investor or as an executive at one of those companies. I think what you do, Goose Creek is like that. I think what I do at Reboot is like that. We're doing good work in the world. And so it's not the richest company in the world. Who the fuck cares? Right, right. We'd both be doing something else probably if we wanted to build the richest company in the world. Yeah, yeah. I'd work for a Mexican drug cartel. Right. Pick. Pick. Putin. (laughs) You know, it's interesting you bring up that story of Matthew Shepard. So I was, uh, my first internship with with the Times was in 1998. And the Matthew Shepard died in October of, October of, I think it was October. It was either September or October of, um, 98. So I had gone back to school and I was off to the times again. I knew at that point that I would be coming back. And I remember picking up the times. Uh, I, I, w- I would walk to Seven Eleven in the morning and buy a copy of the times every day. I'm reading it, read it. And I, I read it in, in my girlfriend's dorm room on the floor. And I remember pulling that out and just crying, mm-hmm. just crying. And so you know, I agree with you on that point that there's an opportunity to create safe spaces for people. Mm. Um, mm. And it, it's not just therapists who do it. It's not just nonprofits that do it, mm. but business uh, business leaders can, can do it in a lot of different ways. You know, it's not necessarily always this idea that that's out there right now about a, a effective altruism per se, right? Because I think some of it you were alluding to the idea that, you know, sometimes people can have false humility. Sometimes people can have false (laughs) altruism Mm. as well. But that idea that Mm. whether you're in finance or whether you're in coaching or whether you're in international development or you're in government, there is opportunity Mm. to improve and better lives and help people uh, reach their potential or feel, feel safer. I think, you know, an interesting thing for me is the first time, I don't know if you know, the first time I ever heard about you or was exposed to you was not covering uh, Silicon Alley. I, I, I was at the Times and I'd been on the police beat covering the NYPD, covering the courts, mm. all that wild stuff. Mm. And then sort of in the traditional Times uh, 
role, you go from a beat like police and then you get brought back into the Metro desk as a general assignment reporter. And I was working with a lot of my peers because I was one of the youngest people at the Times, worked at New York Times Digital. And oh, yeah. Yeah. So, and you, you guys had been, you know, Flatiron had been partners with New York Times Digital. So that's how I first heard about you at the first time. And you will probably be surprised by this. It was actually those conversations with them about groups like Flatiron or Josh Harris's We Live in Public or, mm-hmm. um, or Silicon Alley Reporter or other groups mm-hmm. like that that actually inspired me to pitch the idea of, hey, guys, we should have a Silicon Alley beat. Um, mm. so, so it's your responsibility, by the way. <laughs> so, oh, everyone, so the whole scandal is my fault. Right. Well, no, no, no. I just think everybody who sort of hated my stories, you're the one to blame. <laughs> so, so, so we should give Jason Calacanis a, a call and let him know that it's really your fault. <laughs> No, but I was going to ask, um, you know, sort of in thinking of uh, why did you decide to work with the, those kinds of companies, Cosmo? I know you work with GeoCities, you work with New York Times Digital. Like, um, and I, I recognize some of it is being in the right time at the right place or wrong time or the right place. But like, what stood out to you from your perspective about the leaders? I imagine leadership is an important quality when it comes up to, it comes to whether a venture capitalist is going to invest because you could have the world's best idea, but the wrong person. Sure. Sure. So each one of those instances is a little different. I'll speak briefly about each one of them. So Cosmo was not an investment that I did. I didn't okay. need our investment in that, but I think it's a great example of being right at the wrong time. Uh, you know, let me ask you, have you used DoorDash or Instacart lately? Oh, I have. And, you know, Amazon and Uber Eats. Yeah. Every time or they Uber come to my door. Right. right? I'm like, or Postmates <laughs> or, and you know, and, you know, the granddaddy of them all is Cosmo. Yeah. Um, and the whole idea of, you know, being able to use a very analog experience in a digital way was fascinating to me, right? And the analog experience was, in effect, grocery delivery, but accessing it in a digital way. In a similar fashion, what was always fascinating to me about uh, MY Times Digital was, uh, you know, that goes back to the roots, my roots as a reporter. I was was at CMP and I was responsible for the launch of uh, our digital undertaking. This is way back in 1994. When the in the dark debate, ages, in the dark <laughs> ages, where the debate was like we were talking about electronic media as delivering magazines on CD-ROMs, I mean, that's how <laughs> dark ages it was, right? And there was this crazy thing called the browser and the web that had, you know, Mark Andreessen was still a graduate student at University of Illinois when I was publishing news on the web in April 2000, no, April 1994. A lot of people um, are not going to believe this, but that was pre-search engine. <laughs> that was, well, no, not, well, we had a search engine called Waze, W-A-I-S, yes. <laughs> Wide Area Internet Search. Um, 
but yes, it was it was it was pre search engine and Lycos before Flatiron. One of my first investments was Lycos, which was arguably the first browser-based yep. web search engine. So when the opportunity came to work with the New York Times, it was, I'm sure you can relate to this, you know, a profound trust in the brand and the commitment to journalism, even though it wavers at times. And uh, the opportunity to take that which was analog and make it digital um, was a fulfillment of some deep belief systems that I had. It was a good investment for us because the way we structured the investment, we still made money, even though the Times Digital didn't go public, which was the original plan. Ah, I didn't. I, I hadn't even realized that. And I, I, I take your point. You know, I don't know if you've ever done the journey or did the journey uh, back when um, uh, the Times was on the West uh, West Forty Third Street. But one moment, mm-hmm. for me, you know, you walk in the building and there's that <laughs> of Adolf Ox that says, "Yeah, all the news that's fit to print." But then you you go up and they have this hallway called Pulitzer Hallway. I've would, been in the Pulitzer hallway. Okay. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. And you would, from you know their yeah. first Pulitzer, there was a picture uh, for yeah. every every Pulitzer and samples of the, the articles yeah. there. And you got to see the power um, that a newspaper uh, and, and it had to yeah. heal people, to help people, to have an impact on their lives. And so for all the criticism that exists about the media, you know, it has an amazing opportunity. It, it has the raw material, as you said before, to have yeah. unbelievable power. Yeah, look, it, 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 you know, the phrase is lost in time, but the phrase fourth estate still carries meaning for me. It's the part of our experience that holds the powerful, the feet to the fire. Now, have they lost their way? Has media lost its way? Sure. But not. there are still journalists out there who give a fuck, who work their tail off. And God bless them. God bless them. I remember um, someone asking me, what did you view as your job as a journalist? And I was like, well, it's simple. There's a quote that sums it up. You know, my job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Um, mm. And I think... And there are a lot of there are a lot of debates about that and what's helpful. I'm a firm believer that you should be an honest broker in doing those jobs. And you know, I think mm-hmm. there's I think that there's an argument for um, the value and the beauty of objectivity. But it's interesting to me to think about you know one of the things that I thought about in thinking about this interview was well you know being a venture capitalist, being a journalist, being a coach are so different, but it seems like you found a common thread between all of them. A- absolutely. But it, it, I want to jump back to one quick thing. Absolutely. What high school did I go to? Wasn't it Edward Murrow? Yeah. Who was Ed Murrow? Oh, yes. <laughs> right. Okay. We're the most right. broadcasters, right? <laughs> right. You know, broadcasting from a roof of a building during the London Blitz, you know, and if you want to be inspired, watch his interview of Joe McCarthy, his takedown of Joe McCarthy, you know, who was until recently probably the the, the most the worst abomination to to enter the halls of Congress, right? Yeah, Donald Trump um, has done a lot for uh, 
<laughs> they did a lot for uh, Joe McCarthy. Donald Trump and his ilk, right? Put it that way, yes, yes, right? Yes. But but you know uh, you know what or or or, or uh, you know his documentary on the migrant workers and the plight of migrant workers in the early 1960s, right? I mean Ed Murrow was a freaking giant in truth telling. Yeah. And not only that, I think a lot of people may go back to that, you know, and you can, you can see it on YouTube still, the um, mm-hmm. interview with McCarthy and they think, wow, that was great. But I think a lot of people don't realize it was heroic. There was a lot of risk in challenging <sighs> during a period where anti-communism in the middle of the cold war, you know, was very right. prominent. It took courage. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, so that's one point I wanted to jump back to. And the, the last point I want, I didn't want to lose it uh, to, to our, our conversation. Why GeoCities? Yeah. So, okay. So GeoCities was arguably one of the first broadly based social media sites, it's sort of the granddaddy of them all. And, but when GeoCities started, it was simply David Bonnet who founded GeoCities David and John Resner, who was the chief technology officer. It was an internet service provider. It was a bank of dial-up modems in the Beverly Hills section. So it was called Beverly Hills Internet. And they started a service where they would host a homepage, which is for the youngsters out there. A homepage is what we used to refer to as a page on the web. And people would put things like, you know, their list of their favorite CDs and their mixtapes. Well, one of the most popular sites was a diary, a blog. We didn't call it that at the time, but a diary of a man who was dying of AIDS. Really? I've never heard this story. And it compelled people to see that those who had the disease were not demons. And the importance of that is what compelled me to look at that as an opportunity. Now, David happened to be the person who introduced me to the folks at Online Partners, Gay.com, Planet Out Partners, because he has always been an outspoken advocate for the rights of the LGBTQ. But It was that story. It was the power of an individual telling their story about the struggle with AIDS that was just so compelling. Yeah. Yeah. I had a similar similar experience with the book and the band played on. And um, Mm. and then, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, It's interesting to me that I do think that if you go back to those Silicon Alley days, there was a lot of nobility in a number of the things that people wanted to do from, you know, helping K through 12 education, or even if you look at companies like, you know, everyone loves to beat up on Facebook now, but like connecting people or other concepts like that. But that, that is not something I had ever heard about GeoCities. And that's Powerful, powerful for me. Well, look, I mean, just the other day, I was talking to friends who are founders, co-founders of a site. This is not just the old times. This is still going on, Jason. Okay. The company's called Byteboard, B-Y-T-E-B-O-A-R-D. And so what are they doing? They are developing testing methodologies 
so that companies who are committed to removing as much as possible unconscious bias in the hiring of engineers can use these tools to meet equity goals in their hiring processes. Or as I like to point to them, they're punching white supremacy in the face. God bless them. Why is it in your mind, Jerry, that companies like that don't get the same attention that your sort of uh, your your Coinbase, your Uber Eats, your whoever of the world? Uh, the simplistic answer is systemic racism. Uh, the more complicated uh, question is: you know, you talked about you know afflicting the comfortable. We are uncomfortable with our complicity in the maintenance of systems that other people, mm. right? You know, one of the core questions I ask in Reboot, my first book, is how have I been complicit in creating the conditions in my life that I say I don't want? The new question for the, for the new book is how have I been complicit in and benefited from the conditions in the world I say I don't want to see? It's almost like you're saying that people will talk a really good game. Um, They'll even talk in a way that's in their self-interest. But then when you look at the checkbook. Yeah. Well, it, 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 you know, the well-intentioned, and I would count myself amongst them, the well-intentioned don't say it's in my interest, right? Mm -hmm. It takes an an enormous amount of radical self-inquiry to be able to say, what am I willing to give up that I value in order for me to see the equitable world that I tell myself I want to see? Yes. It's always a trade-off. I think often people would like advancement as long as it costs them nothing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think about it with, um, you know, as someone who's a Black American, that taking something as simple as affirmative action, it costs. It costs other people let's say, some kind of opportunity, right? But the same thing for me as somebody who considers himself a feminist, you know, that when I am opening up doors for women that wouldn't normally be open to them, yes, it comes at a cost for other people. And guess what? Some of those other people look just like me. So, you know, it's that idea that to make the world a better and more equitable place, regardless of who you are, whether you're a white man, a black man, whether you are gay or straight, there is a toll for that, right? There to be aligned with your values requires a certain cost that you will need to pay to get there. And uh, I think it was a big revelation for me recognizing, yeah, it'll, it'll cost and I'm willing to pay that cost. You know, uh, uh, I started writing the new book. The new book is called Reunion. And as I said, it's due out this fall. And I started writing this book shortly after the murder of George Floyd. And because I had to, I had to come to grips with my own experience as a white, cisgendered, straight man with all the power and privilege that comes with that. Mm-hmm. And my ability to say, Look, I have an ethical and moral responsibility, right? What did I say before? With to whom much is given, much is expected, right? Or as Peter Parker's uncle Ben said, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. You know, and in that journey, 
to understanding and coming to an understanding of my own relatedness to whiteness, one of the things, one of the most powerful essays I read was by James Baldwin. And it's called mm. The Price of the Ticket. Yep. And what he says is that the price of the ticket of whiteness is a disconnection and a disassociation with our ancestors, with their own experience. So the movement towards whiteness, a movement that includes a complicity with a world that we say we don't want to see, a world of supremacy, a world of patriarchy, a world of heteronormative structures that literally kill people, literally kill people. The price of that ticket is our own loss of humanity. Yeah, that is a, the price of the ticket is a, you know, powerful moral essay. Um, you know, and for those who haven't read it, I would completely recommend it. You know, I think it gives guiding inter- ideas that you're sort of getting at it, Jerry, here about not just race, but also about sexuality, about exactly. racism more generally. It is, um, you know, for me, it's, it is something that helped me see the interconnections between all of those things when it came to um, equity or uh, yeah, when it came to equity. And so we've talked about a lot of like positive things so far, but I don't think everyone was driven by that. So I was going to ask you (laughs) just a little bit from your perspective about what the environment during Silicon Alley was during the 1990s. You know, we had some characters that we worked with um, and I'm not sure I could even say what motivated them, but (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, I I don't think a lot of people today, or at least young people today, would know about Josh Harris as we we live in public, where where Josh basically was an entrepreneur running this company called Pseudo.com, which I hope you didn't invest in. (laughs) We did not not invest in Pseudo Networks. (laughs) (laughs) They, uh, but basically, Josh, uh, his business model was that we would all live with him on camera all the time, and there were some crazy moments Mm. um, and some crazy parties. And then, you know, there were people like Jason, uh, who we mentioned before, Jason Calcanis, who's still a venture capitalist today, but you know, Mm. there was a wild ride at a lot of. Is that what was that environment like? Because I think it's so foreign to people to think that business would mix with all those wild things that came along with it. What was it like? Oh, well, uh, if yeah, and again, to, for the youngsters out there, I'm sure it's available on YouTube. You should watch the documentary "We Live in Public," which is yes. about pseudo, but it's also about like Josh. Um, handing out automatic weapons and shooting up the basement of, you know, a building in Soho, which was the headquarters. Um, those are probably, that was probably the most extreme that I'm cognizant of. And you know what's crazy about that story? I couldn't even get it on the front page. I was like, this is. (laughs) You know, maybe it said something about how bad I was. (laughs) uh, You know, it it was a it was a crazy time. It was a time of, I think there was um, there was a sense of possibility, a sense of inventing the world. I think there was a delusion. There was a. You know, it was within the larger context of what was happening, not just in New York, but across, you know, the emergence of this. I mean, I remember John Doerr, um, an elder statesman in the venture business saying, 
something to the effect that the internet is the greatest wealth creation engine ever seen by humans, right? And this was, of course, just before the first dot-com crash. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, uh, it was a boom time. It was epic. It was Shakespearean. It was, you know, I think of the, the you know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the craziest of times. It was times of enormous possibility. Yeah. It was, you know, parties at night and people becoming millionaires overnight and only to have it all wiped away. Um, yeah. It was, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was amazing that since you say it was parties at night and then, um, then, uh, you know, business a day. I'm pretty sure it was parties at night and day. I, I remember yeah. Silicon Alley yeah. After Hours Club that opened up every night at 11 p.m. It was like in the basement yeah. of a bar. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, do you, do you remember the Razorfish guys? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Oh, I, I, and, yeah. yeah. He, I mean, um, Jeff is building a, a, a great company called OneDrop which is providing a much more sophisticated, user-friendly experience for folks with diabetes doing uh, insulin tracking, insulin testing. I mean, I don't know what to say. It was, it was, I'm glad I was a part of it and I'm glad it's over. So Jeff, yeah, right? Jeff is doing that now. Jeff Douches is here yeah. talking about who uh, led Razorfish. Yeah, one of the wildest companies. <laughs> And it, One of a, the wildest companies. It's a, a company I almost went to work for as chief operating officer. Oh, really? I had no, yeah. I had no idea. That was before Flatiron. Before yeah. Flatiron. Yeah, and they and, and I guess he's another example of what you're talking about here, which is like we mature, we grow, and yeah. out of those uh, formative experiences, all sorts of cool things. Mm -hmm. I wanted to sort of jump back to something you said before, you know, you said it was a delusional time. And I, I would say there were a lot of delusions about what people could make money on and whether how many hours you could spend partying in a day compared to working. But do you think that that experience with your mom helped you read the room and see the difference between the people who were authentic or the people who really had the best chance of having an impact? Not to say that you got it right but I think for a lot of us as a journalist during that time, and I think a lot of venture capitalists fit mm. in the same bucket, we were living in like what they called, you know, the Steve Jobs real reality distortion field. Everything seemed like it was a billion dollar idea. And you seem to do a little bit better than most of us. Maybe it was that. Uh, maybe. Um, I also give a lot of credit to my friend and former partner, Fred who has always been a very, very steady hand, kind of grounded, not, not quite as caught up in the unreality or the reality distortion fields that happen. I mean, we're living through a time right now where the reality distortion field has been rudely disrupted again. Mm -hmm. So maybe the part of me that would, as a little boy, look in the room and say to my family, Hey, hold on here. Jesus Christ is not in the room, even though mom's talking to him. 
Am I the only one who sees that Jesus Christ is not in the room? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> or am yeah. I the one who's delusional because Jesus is in the room? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I remember turning down an investment. I remember asking an entrepreneur why he wanted to do the business he was doing. And when he said to me, listen, I went to business school with this person and this person and this person, and they're all millionaires and I'm smarter than they are. So it's my turn. I was like, yeah, you should get the fuck out of my office. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that is not a here? reason to be funded. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. And that partnership between you and Fred Wilson was always a, a very interesting thing to watch. So you credit uh, some of that it, really about being your, con- your differences helped you mm-hmm. and your, yeah. And you're, Fred, you Fred is that? Fred is one of the smartest people I've ever met, and uh, what people don't understand is how kind he is. I mean, a lot of people know it, but they don't understand the depth of his kindness. And I, you know, I won't reveal, but I know far too many stories of the ways in which he sacrificed himself or took responsibility for things that were not his responsibility. Mm. Because he is kind. And uh, that's also a quality, by the way, that people don't associate with anybody with the name capitalist or that word capitalist in their title, right? Is kindness. Yeah. Now, I always found him to be kind and helpful as a reporter. I think a lot of people don't know about uh, being a reporter, even at a prominent newspaper, you generally know nothing. <laughs> but you have to write glibly about it. Yes. <laughs> You're an expert in everything. Um and so Fred was one of those people who uh the, he was a part of the education of Jason Blair when it came to technology. All right. <laughs> to to that end, can I follow up on a quick story for you? Yeah. Oh please. I, I, I remember uh before we had made the investment in NY Times Digital, before we got closer to to management there. I remember uh, the business section at the Times doing, quite frankly, stupid stories, like just fucking stupid stories. And I remember going in, and I won't name names, but meeting with the head of uh, the business section and then having a, an off-the-record town hall with all of the reporters and literally taking them through things like how to read an S1. <laughs> because you know, I can tell this story. I, I remember being an S one is a SEC financial document, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's the it's the document a company files before it goes public, right? And so, a, a good example of this, not times related, but sixty minutes related. I remember Steve Croft, the the great journalist for sixty minutes. Wanting to come in, and this was the height of the dot-com bubble slash crass. And right, so he sits down and we're walking. We're doing all this B-roll shot of him and me walking through the office. And we sit down and I'm on camera and, you know, uh, he sits across the table from me. And now there comes a moment where he's going to do the big reveal, you know, the big reveal. And he slides a paper in front of me and he says, you made an investment in this company. It's like, that's correct. And it's unprofitable. And I look at him and I said, yes. that's why they needed our investment. <laughs> it's like, 
It's like, but you're investing other people's money in unprofitable businesses. And I said, that's the business model. <laughs> I remember, <laughs> Jerry, this is going to crack you up. So when I, I came a little bit after that happened, so the names that yep. you won't name, I already know them in my head. Uh-huh. But, um, <laughs> so when I first you know, pitched the idea of covering Silicon Alley, they, I, I continued to report to Metro, but I also reported to the business desk. And so when that happened, right. the the then New York Times columnist, uh, Gretchen Morganson, who's now at the Wall Street Journal, um, mm. threw a book on my desk. And it was it looked like the most boring thing ever. But it was a book mm. on all the SEC financial reports and how to uh-huh. them. Because she said, you know, if you are going to cover this, you need to yes. know where to what things mean and where to really find them. And I thought, right. you know, it, it's a it's a really and David Carr probably taught me this as right. well. He was the late New York Times media reporter. But they both said to me, so outside of the lessons I learned from David, one right. of which was keep on firing until you run out of bullets. Um, and, then, and also he taught me to run the two minute hurry up offense that didn't end after two minutes. But he taught me context is king. And if you don't understand the context, you can't cover anything. Right. Well, you know, those are all great lessons. And those and and you just named two great journalists, you know, and uh, and uh, the Times, the Post, they all have great journalists. But to be clear, the numbers, not every reporter is as informed. And it sounds obvious once you say it. But, you know, as somebody who's been in your seat has been a reporter uh, or been in the seat that you used to occupy, I would get incredibly frustrated. It's like, wait, wait, wait. You don't want to ask me that question. You want to ask me these questions first. <laughs> like, and what then, are you doing? <laughs> yeah, not, not because I'm trying to control the narrative. I'm just trying to so, not waste time explaining to an incredibly prominent journalist, Steve Croft, why investing in non you know unprofitable businesses is not a terrible idea well and it's risky to, but it's not I mean, a terrible idea yeah and, and to your point right like even understanding it be able to articulate that context but even being able to sort of question some things right if you don't have that context and i've i've heard people talk to, talk to me about uh, on the business side about being interviewed and saying things to me like, if they had only asked me this question right. first, right, they would have realized where the hole really is. <laughs> right, 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 right. It, it you know, it's, it's, uh, and I get it. I mean, the business model doesn't always uh, support it, right? I mean, what we're talking about is, is really, you know, a beat reporter not moving from beat to beat to beat, but really investing, right? Gretchen didn't become Gretchen overnight. Right. You know, right. Uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin didn't become Andrew Ross Sorkin overnight. You know, David Gellis became David Gellis over decades. You know, it takes time. If you want to tell a story about me being bad at journalism, I've got an Andrew Ross Sorkin story for you. The day that AOL and Time Warner merged, guess, guess mm-hmm. which reporter was hanging out with, uh, the Time Warner CEO the the night before the murder. <laughs> and, and didn't get the story? Oh, not only that, even worse. I overheard a conversation that would have, if I had been any other business reporter on the planet, 
would have uh, tipped them off that the murder was going to happen. And then the next morning it was announced, right? And I had sent an email over to Andrew and to, uh, I think it was Allison Small, who was the business editor, Mm. or one of the business editors at the time. I said, I heard this weird thing at the (laughs) meeting yesterday. (laughs) And they were like, have you looked at the newspaper this morning? (laughs) And I was like, well, what do you mean? I don't see anything in our paper. They said, the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) Yeah, right. Right, right, right. Clearly, oh, there was a very good reporter there listening, and it wasn't me. <laughs> right, right. But that right. actually comes to, I think, another point that so much in life is really about failing, getting back up, and yeah. um, succeeding, and investing in yourself, and knowing, going back to your previous point, that you can't be perfect. And for all of us who are in Silicon Alley, all of that that stuff came crashing down at some point. You know, I remember this one time, Jared, that I was, it was like March of 2001. So before the September Mm. 11th attacks, I was at the World Trade Center Marriott. Do you remember Alley Cat News? The, oh sure, uh, sure. What were the, what were their names? They were the the Janet Sites and yeah, Allison um, yeah, yeah. Weekly. Yeah, yep. Um, love them, love both of them. But I was talking at their um, one of their conferences. And it was a bunch of entrepreneurs and they had asked me a question about advice on media profile. And I, you know, gave them advice on how to sort of garner, garner attention. Sounds a lot mm. like Elon Musk's behavior. And what I realized <laughs> afterwards was I gave, I got really good advice from people like you and Fred and gave really terrible advice. (laughs) You know, and in my coaching right now, I I work with um, on the, you know, the corporate commercial side with some Mm. of some of the biggest names in technology that were, you know, let's say in the last 10 years, they were, they were startups. Some of them have been acquired Mm. by other companies and, we've been talking about this idea of investing in yourself and us growing and people growing. Why do you think so many startup leaders and organizations struggle to mature? Like what, what qualities do we need as people or leaders to sort of mature and grow? What does that start with? Well, I'll, I'll answer it in a typically quippy way. So I'm fond of saying that better humans make better leaders. And when I say that, everybody sort of goes, well, duh, that's kind of fucking obvious. And then I say, well, if it's so obvious, why do we have such terrible leadership? And I think we have terrible leadership because the growing up part that is required to be a better human is hard. Yeah. It's, you know, what we're joking about and talking about, whether it's seeing a coach or going into therapy or really just sort of critically, radically inquiring within. I mean, we don't do this on a society level. We don't do it on an organizational level. And we certainly don't do it systemically on an individual level because it's hard. Right. Yes, very, very. I remember after, you know, the dot-com boom uh, or bust starts Mm -hmm. to happen sort of in 2000. Then in September of 2001, they had the 2000. Well, I mean, we had the September 11 attacks, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, being in Manhattan, being in New York during that time, it's hard to, hard to describe what, Mm -hmm. what that felt like. And I remember afterwards, uh, for me, 
you know, covered the attacks. Then I started covering New York City tourism, um, you know, rebuilding and those things. And mm. you, I know, did some work. You were involved in the partnership for New York. Did did the mm-hmm. attacks change things for you? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It 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 changed the entire trajectory of my life. I don't know that I would have left the venture capital business had it not been for the attacks. The, you know, I lost people. I was in D.C. the morning of the attacks. I had flown down that morning. It, you, you mentioned uh, the work that, that I and a bunch of other people did trying to help small businesses uh, recover from the attacks. You know, in some ways, and I haven't made this connection before this moment, in some ways, it's it's a it's a bit like what the pandemic has done, which was it cost, caused a great reassessment of what what matters, and yeah. you know what mattered to me, my own mental well being, my own personal satisfaction. I mean, it, it you know following the attacks, I I entered yet another massive depression. Huh. I, I don't know that that the depression was directly linked, but it's hard to say it didn't impact it. Yeah. I think that um, for me, one interesting thing too about the attacks, as hard as it was, that's what got me to go to rehab. Um, in January mm-hmm. 2020, I woke up one meeting, a morning, had a meeting with one of my bosses, you know, it was supposed to be about my career. We went out to breakfast in downtown Brooklyn. And instead of talking about my career, I just blurted out, I have a problem. And was in uh, rehab by the end of the day. But I feel like those experiences, going through the attacks, um, going to rehab for me, getting diagnosed uh, years later after the scandal, mm. the worst things that have, that I have either done or have happened mm. to me or some combination, because it's usually a combination, are the things that have formed the best qualities of me right now. Mm. Like, so mm. if I, you know, had advice for anyone who was uh, crazy enough to admire one of my qualities, I would say, go walk through some fire. Um, brother yeah which sort of brings me to kind of uh more modern times for us you know in 2007 you became a coach in 2007 i became a coach you first Mm. (laughs) my path scandalous yours not (laughs) but I, you know, I was looking to start my coaching practice. Um, the story for me is that I had been working it in a nonprofit. I had started a support group, not because I'm an altruist, but because I needed to understand this thing called bipolar. Um, and it eventually expanded in our region to like five or six support groups. And we started doing things like um, education. So we would do these weekend depression screenings where we would just sit outside a grocery store with like a short cheat with questions on depression. And if anybody was seriously Mm. depressed, we would partner with a a psychology practice that was nearby so we could walk the people right up and they had a clinician available to screen and, you know, at no cost. And after doing that a couple times, one of the psychologists there was like, hey man, 
you should really be a life coach. And I was like, hey, man, have you read anything about me? And he was like, <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> um, and after he said it a couple times, uh, I, I finally started looking into it. And he actually, you know, I will always be grateful. He put me through my coaching program, gave me my mm. first coaching job as mm. a mental health coach. But one of the things when I was considering and looking at the idea, I looked up, you know, who are some coaches and I saw you. Um, so I was always curious about what inspired you to get into coaching. And also if you could share with, share a little bit about what coaching is really like, as opposed to the sort of Windy Roads billions model of, of coaching. <laughs> Windy Roads. Uh, I get people saying it to me all the time. So you're like Windy Roads. I'm like, no, I'm not. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that that what drew me in was realizing that, and, and maybe the way I'm going to call them a mentor helped respond to you, was the realization that there was, you know, it, 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 it sparks back to it or it connects back to that generosity statement I was making before. You know, I had a set of experiences and I could draw from the set of experiences and I could draw from the character traits that helped define me. And I could give back in a particular way that seemed to be relatively unique. You know, I have this fairly extensive business expertise that developed over time. I have this crazy Buddhist practice that is a foundational component of who I am now, which came about as a consequence of the depression that I experienced. And then I have this very decades-old experience as a, as a patient of psychotherapy. And you put all those three things together and you get this sort of weird combination of being able to lean in and see and feel things and be able to reflect them back. So rather than the Wendy Rhodes model, the image that I hold is, is that what you and I do, Jason, is we're mirrored surface bowls, meaning people put their experiences in our bowl for an hour or two, and we mirror back what's going on so that they could get a different perspective so that they could then take charge of their life. Right. Um, and, you know, I think that, that good coaching uh, whether it's you call it life coaching, executive coaching, good coaching draws upon the wide variety of experiences of the practitioner so that they can be fully present to the other person because that presence is what creates healing. Yeah. And I think a lot of people enter the coaching uh, practice thinking that it's about giving advice or thinking it's almost like the role of being a consultant. And I often right. think or a mentor. Right. Yeah. I think it's like being a mindful mirror is what I say. Like yeah. being able yeah. to be mindful, present, and mirror that. Yeah. 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 I think that that's right. So I was going to sort of close with, you know, and I feel like I've learned a lot. Like a lot of things I walked into this conversation thinking that I would be asking about contradictions are actually uh, synergies between mm. all of your experiences and and so I was thinking from the perspective of, you know, leaders, employees, just humans on the, the planet, when you think about those concepts that you talked about, about radical, uh, was it radical self? 
Self-inquiry. Self-inquiry and um, building from raw, raw materials. Are there any sort of like mm. thoughts or closing thoughts that you have, you know, that you would offer, because not everybody gets to be your coaching client, Jerry, um, that you would offer people? <laughs> um, Although they can listen to your podcast. <laughs> they can. They can. I, what I, I draw inspiration from something that, uh, a paraphrase of something that uh, Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, talked about, which was that the treasure you seek is in the back of the cave. The thing that we most need to heal, to grow up, to become the person that we were born to, to be, more often than not, is way in the back of the cave where it's dark and scary. And mm -hmm. to take comfort in the fact that others have gone to the back of the cave before and that they can be guides. Because in effect, you know, what you do, Jason, is you guide people to the back of the cave. I had a, um, when I went to rehab, there was this woman at the mm -hmm. New York Times, uh, one of their researchers, and she, mm -hmm. she had been sober for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years at that time. She never made the argument to me once to become sober. She just hung around in the background, right? And was my friend and talked to me and asked me questions, right? Very, mm. very similar to a coach's approach. Never advocated once. Mm. And I always asked her, you know, about, you know, why did you take that approach? Why didn't you, why didn't you say something? And she had said, well, if I had given you advice, we would have just gotten into an argument. But <laughs> <laughs> if, if, I, if I was just yep. there and I was able yep. to reflect back to you, um, yeah. I knew you'd find your way. And she also gave yeah. me another great piece of advice. She said, if you're going to go alone in your own head, bring a flashlight and a gun. If not, bring a friend. And, yeah. you know, sometimes yeah. I think that coaches can be your flashlight and your gun yeah. when you're going inside your own head. Yeah. Well, Jerry, I just wanted to thank you for this time. I know your time is very valuable. It has been a super insightful uh, conversation, and I think our listeners are really going to enjoy the conversation and the insights. And I'm looking forward to having you back again at some point, or maybe joining you on Reboot at some point. Uh, um, that sounds like a blast. That sounds right. like a blast. And, and Jason, I just want to say how thrilled I am at the man that you've become. I'm going to, I'm sorry. I'm going to sound like the older, bigger brother. <laughs> fuck it. Okay. I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm really, really happy for you. Um, and it wasn't a scandal. It was a drama. Yeah. It was the road I needed to take to become the person I am. I often Amen. tell people, Jerry, that if I had never been through that, I would not have liked the person that I would have naturally become. And for that, I'm grateful. You know, people often ask me when I talk about the positives of it, like, well, if you mm -hmm. had it over again mm -hmm. and you could wave a magic wand and uh, not, not go through that experience, would you do it? And I said, well, if there was another way to get all the good, oh, of course. <laughs> right. Right. But, right. but it's, it's right. not a tough call for me because right. the price, right. the beauty that has come out of it has been well worth the price well i i hear uh, you. Thanks, thanks for joining us i appreciate it
you know, for our listeners, we look forward to being with you all again on the next episode. I'm Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast.